0: over the last few weeks, more than one member of this congregation has expressed to me a certain amount of anxiety about the future. Uh, In fact, it might be safe to say that we all have anxieties about the future. Some of us are worried where our careers are, are headed, whether or not we'll ever be married, whether or not our marriages will survive, whether or not our children will trust in Christ, whether or not will even have children, Uh, where we will live, how long our health will hold up, or if we will make ends meet. Some of us are worried about the trajectory of this nation or that nation. We're worried about wars and natural disasters. We're worried about the end of the world. I have good news for you this morning. In the face of worries, in Luke 21, Jesus teaches us that we need not fear the future. That we need not fear the future. Particularly when it comes to the end of the world, Jesus teaches us that our approach to the future cannot be filled with worry, ignorance, or blindness. But that it must be filled with faith. Christians approach the future with confidence in our good and sovereign God, certainty in His control, and a carefulness to avoid discouragement. This is what we have the privilege of thinking about this morning from Luke chapter 21. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 21 if you're using one of the Bibles provided. I believe you can find the passage beginning on page 880. You'll be helped to follow along as we work our way through the text this morning. While you're turning there, uh, let's remember what has just taken place in Luke's Gospel. The the Gospel of Luke, you you may know, is a Greco-Roman biography of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's a carefully researched and orderly account of Jesus birth his early ministry is teaching along the road to Jerusalem on the way there and his final days in that city which culminated in his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave we are nearing the end of our study of Luke's gospel in fact Jesus has entered into the last week of his life before his death on the cross in the midst of his teaching about the kingdom of God in this last week Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God While he's been doing that, the Jewish religious leaders have begun to test Jesus, to challenge him. They've wanted to know where his authority comes from. Uh, They've wanted to know what what gives him the right to say these things, to do these things. They've, They've wanted to pit him against the Roman authorities by asking about taxes. And the Jewish religious leaders even wanted to pit Jesus against the people by asking him if he believed in the resurrection from the grave. Having silenced his critics with his answers, Jesus asks them a question. He wanted to know how it could be that King David's son was also King David's Lord. You see, Jesus, he was pressing upon his hearers his identity. That he himself, that Jesus himself was both David's son And David's Lord. Jesus was claiming to be a king from David's line. And David's Lord. That he was God in the flesh. And as Luke chapter 20 closed, Jesus warned the people listening to him. He warned them of the emptiness, the pretense, and the predatory nature of the religion of the temple leaders. Their leadership, their religion, and the institution, the temple that they were leading was devoid of true religion. For they had rejected God's most beloved son, the Messiah, from David's line. They had rejected Jesus. They rejected the cornerstone upon which God was building His church. Notice, right before we get to our chapter, just in the last verse, notice in Luke chapter 20, verse 47... That Jesus decries the fact that these religious leaders devour widows' houses. And as you look up into Luke 21, do you see who Jesus sees as he looks up? He sees a widow giving all that she has to an institution and leaders of an institution who have not been faithful to God. Verses 5 to 33 then comprise questions and a discourse from Jesus about living with certainty in uncertain times the chapter comes to a close with Jesus giving his disciples instruction on how to live carefully in the world and if you're taking notes this morning these three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon first living with confidence second living with certainty and third living with care Let's begin with our first point, living with confidence. And as we do, let me read the first four verses of this chapter. Luke chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This poor widow displays what it looks like to live with faith, with confidence in God. Giving to the temple was a pretty public event, for these offering boxes mentioned there in verse 1 were found in one of the outer courts, one of the accessible courts. Um, There were some 13 boxes available for deposit, and worshipers would place their gifts into the the box through a shofar. It's a ram's horn. Uh, In in other words, these offerings would be received through kind of a trumpet-like opening. Uh, The the rich that Jesus saw contributing their gifts at the temple would have likely been standing at those trumpets for quite a while. Mark's gospel uh, tells us that they contributed large sums of money. And the widow, on the other hand, would have walked up, dropped her two coins in, and kind of walked away without much fuss. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus' eyes are drawn to this poor widow. We, we live in a world that loves money, don't we? But the king of this world, Jesus, he loves faith. Not faith in money and what it can buy you, the illusion illusion of safety and security and satisfaction but faith in God with this deposit this needy widow showed her confidence that her future was in the hands of the God who holds the future now does this mean what we read here does this mean that we need to give every last penny we have to the church no but this woman and Jesus reflection on her sacrificial giving does demand that we entrust our future to God, to our God who holds the future. This woman's example also challenges us with respect to our giving. Are we giving sacrificially, joyfully, and with confidence in our God? The religious leaders and the rich, mentioned here, had a showy religion. That's what we learn through the end of chapter 20, the beginning of chapter 21. Jesus teaches us that a religion that has substance is displayed in sacrifice. So here's a question that we need to reflect on. Are we living in confidence like this widow? Are you living in faith like this widow? Is your life marked by sacrifice, by a giving of yourself, an entrusting of yourself to God and to others? Are you more ready to give, or are you more ready to keep, For some, the the transition from verse 4 to the verses that follow seems strange. Why do we move from a lesson about a widow living in faith to Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple? We move from a lesson about living in faith, living with confidence in the God who holds the future, to the destruction of the temple because not only had the people rejected Jesus, the the very one whom the temple pointed to, but also because this widow's deposit was a picture of, of the Jewish religious leaders devouring widows' houses, as Jesus had said in chapter 20, verse 47. The whole institution and system that supported such an unjust preying upon the poor was worthy of the judgment of God. And Jesus tells the disciples that they can be certain that the temple, Jerusalem, and the world will face God's wrath against sin. Jesus tells His disciples that they also have a certain hope of redemption. So let's turn now and consider our second point, living with certainty. And as we do, read Luke. let's read Luke chapter 21, verses 5 to 33. Luke 21, beginning of verse 5. We'll stop in verse 33. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come... When there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let those who are in the inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth, and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword, be led captive among the nations." And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Well, well, what do we have here? Uh, we have a gazing and a gawking at a massive temple structure, and we have a prediction from Jesus that it will all come tumbling down. And that is just verses 5 and 6. I'd like to zoom out for a minute and give you kind of the big picture perspective on these verses. so You have a sense of how this discourse from Jesus is working. Jesus' focus here is mainly upon encouraging his disciples to live with certainty in uncertain time. Living with certainty does not mean that all will be at peace. Living with certainty in uncertain times will include a number of events which give us pause. However, since we know the one who has predicted them, since we have his instructions on how to live through them, and since we know the end, we can live with certainty knowing that our God is in control and that we live under his fatherly care. This discourse, as it proceeds, expands. It begins with a a near-term localized event and expands to a worldwide event. It begins with God's judgment on Jerusalem and the temple only to expand to God's judgment of the world. In other words, it takes a near-term immediate future events and says that they, they typify, they are a foretaste of the coming final judgment. They are a small picture of a big end. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple are minuscule pictures of the worldwide judgment that is coming at Jesus' return. Now let's step through the text and think about it in more detail. In verses 5 and 6, we have praise and prediction. Just a moment ago, I mentioned that in verses 5 and 6, we are greeted by people who are gazing and gawking at this massive temple structure. And when I say it was a massive temple structure, I mean it was a massive Temple structure. At the time, this temple structure took up roughly one-sixth of the city of Jerusalem. It took up 36 acres. It would, it would glimmer in the sun and be seen from a great distance. This was the house that Herod built. You'll see there that these noble stones that are mentioned in verse, eight, uh, verse 5, some of those noble stones were over 40 feet in length, 10 feet high and more than 12 feet deep. These stones would weigh in at more than 500 tons. One scholar pointed out that a single wall was more than 1,500 feet long. Uh, And as you know, uh, that's longer than five football fields put together. And that's just one one exterior wall. And imagine the, the grandeur that you would look at when you actually got inside the thing. The temple took years and years and years to build In fact, in John chapter 2, we're told that it took 46 years to build the temple. So now consider again what Jesus is saying in verse 6. Jesus says there, look at there, verse 6. As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. See, such a, a, a declaration would have been unimaginable for Jesus' hearers. Such stones being thrown down would have struck them as climactic, cataclysmic, and apocalyptic. Though Luke doesn't indicate it here, Matthew and Mark's gospel makes it plain that the disciples viewed this statement from Jesus as indicative of the end of the world, the end of the age. For the disciples, the end of the temple did mean the end of the world. It was the center of their religion. It was the center of their world. But as we see in this discourse, Jesus tells his disciples... That they need to keep those two things distinct. The destruction of the temple and the end of the world need to be kept distinct, though they are related. Verses 7 to 11, you see here we have a wondering and a warning. In verse 7, Jesus is asked two questions in response to his prediction. You'll see there, verse 1. Uh, sorry, number 1, when will these things be? And number 2, what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? You see how the disciples are wondering about these things that Jesus is saying in verse 7. They're wondering. Jesus doesn't begin by answering the questions, does He? He begins with a warning in verse 8. Do not be led astray. What does that mean? Well, it means that people will try to lead the disciples astray. Though Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the first century, this strikes me as applicable to us today. Friends, brothers and sisters of Christ, there are are false teachers out there. And we must be careful not to be led astray. We must exercise discernment. And that means we've got to have our Bibles in our minds and our minds on our Bibles, thinking about them carefully. Carefully. We've got to think carefully about God's Word so we're hearing things, we're testing them against God's Word. Jesus keeps going with His warning. Many will come in My name saying, I am He. Look, I'm going to make this really easy for us. If anyone has to try and convince you that they're Jesus, they are obviously not Jesus. Because we're told that when he returns, we're told in Philippians 2 that every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. When Jesus returns, actually, zero discernment will be necessary. It will be the only time in history where zero discernment will be needed. When Jesus returns, you will know he is back. And because it's a pet peeve of mine, if I may... Can I just take a moment to denounce those who announce that Jesus is coming back on a certain day and time? In Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 to 44, Jesus explains that no one knows the hour of his coming except his Father in heaven. So if no one knows, then no one knows. So those Christians who claim to know don't actually know, don't listen to people who are predicting dates. Listen to those who are concerned that you follow Jesus faithfully and live with a certain hope of heaven. We should also recognize that what Jesus has just said focuses his audience for us. All throughout this passage, Jesus has been saying, you, 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 you. And as Sinclair Ferguson has said, the you in the text is not the you in the pew. The you in the text is not the you in the pew. At this point, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. This first and foremost must make sense to them. And then we have to understand how it relates to us and how we can make applications. In verse 9, Jesus informs His disciples that there are going to be wars and tumults. Indeed, these things must take place, Jesus says. But then He adds, but the end will not be at once. You see what Jesus is saying there. These things are not yet signs of the end of the temple or the end of the world. Rather, they are signs of life in a fallen world. These things still take place in our world today too, don't they? These are things that have been going out, going on throughout the history of the world. I think we need to be careful not to take the signs of living in a fallen world, wars, natural disasters, diseases. I think we should be careful not to take signs of living in a fallen world as signs of the end. Verses 10 and 11, I think, function kind of something of an expansion of verse 9. Here Jesus explaining what, what these wars and kind of tumults include. Still, through it all, Jesus is concerned that his disciples not be terrified by these things. Jesus understands his disciples, doesn't he? I mean, wars and natural disasters are terrifying things. He says there, even at the end of verse 11, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Jesus tells them that this is so, so that they will not be terrified. See that there in verse 9. And in verses 12 to 19, we have persecution and preservation. Persecution and preservation. To to ratchet up the intensity, in verses 12 to 19, Jesus says that before the destruction of the temple takes place, before these false Christs and wars get underway, before all that I predicted in verses 6 through 11, the disciples will be persecuted. Because they have faith and follow Jesus. The disciples are going to be delivered to synagogues, thrown in prisons, and brought before kings and governors. Go and read the book of Acts this afternoon, and you will find that this is exactly what happened. It happens to Peter and John and Paul. Jesus, he was a true prophet. He spoke, and his word was true and came true. And do you know what else he was right about? He was right that this would be the disciples' opportunity to witness and they were faithful to bear witness now let me ask this again who is this promise of the Holy Spirit amazingly bringing to mind the wisdom of God as they stand before kings and governors and synagogues for who is this promise for it is for Jesus disciples for the apostles these verses do not give teachers of God's word they do not give me license to say you know what I'm going to take this week off of sermon preparation. And I think I'll just come and stand up here and see what the Holy Spirit brings to mind. No. Just to recall what Sinclair Ferguson said in the text, that you in the text is not the you in the pew or behind the pulpit. Jesus' words are clearly addressed to a particular people in a particular place in a particular period for a particular purpose. So what's the application for us? And for me? It's know your Bible, read your Bible, study your Bible, prepare to preach your Bible. Know it again, read it again. We should ask for the help of the Holy Spirit when we're discussing God's Word and His works with others. We should ask for the Spirit's help. We should depend upon the Spirit. And we should not neglect the reading and the remembrance of God's Word. We must be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have within. And if we're to have something within, we've got to put it in. We must be ready to give an answer. And if we're ready to give an answer, we have to prepare. And that preparation comes from reading and studying and knowing God's Word. There is great encouragement for Jesus' disciples in verse 18. Jesus even soberly and honestly warns them that some of them will be put to death. Many of the disciples were put to death. But then he says, intriguingly, but not a hair on your head will perish. Well, was Jesus confused? You're going to die, but you're not going to die. I don't think Jesus was confused. I think what he was saying is what he has said elsewhere. Though you shall die, yet you shall live. And John eleven twenty five. 25. That's what Jesus said. The same sentiment is expressed by Paul in Romans 8, verses 35 to 39. You know that great passage that neither life nor death can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Jesus is saying, They may kill the body, but I'll eternally preserve your life. What a word of comfort for Jesus' disciples. He's saying to them, Brothers, stand up with boldness and witness. Take me at my word. You will not be lost. In verse 19, Endure in faith. Run the race. You'll live eternally. You have my word. What other encouragement do they need? Really, what other encouragement do we need? We who are children of God will not be lost. Though we may die, yet shall we live. All who trust in Christ cannot be lost. In verses 20 to 24, we have an answer and an admonition. It's not until we get to verse 20 that Jesus steps closer to answering these questions. The question, when will these things be? And two, what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? Read verse 20 there. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Now, how does that strike you as an answer to the when and the what? Again, notice here Jesus gives no date, but he does give an answer to the question that at the point in which you see these things happening, there will be no mistaking that Jerusalem and the temple's destruction is at hand. You will know it when you see it. And notice how quickly Jesus attaches a command or an admonition to this information. Jesus gives a one-verse answer to the question and then a multiple-verse admonition. Where do, you think, where do you think he wants to place the emphasis? I think how we're supposed to live in response. How his disciples are supposed to live. And, and, and if I may summarize this admonition, I think I can get it down to two words. Get out. I think we can do better than that. Let's summarize it in one word. Let's use the word that Jesus himself used there in verse 21. Flee. Jesus tells his disciples to flee Jerusalem. Flee because it's going to be horrific. Now here's the thing. Jesus' prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple came true. It came true in A.D. 70. And it was as bad as he predicted from A.D. 66 to A.D. 70, Rome and the Jewish people were at war. One historian noticed, noted that Titus besieged Jerusalem in the spring of 70 A.D. and by summers end, the city fell and the temple was destroyed. You can read about that in Josephus' Jewish Wars. Uh, the Romans commemorated their victory by erecting the Titus Arch, which still stands in Rome today. Josephus, the Jewish historian, recounts that more than a million Jews were killed in the siege, and 97,000 were taken as slaves. Eusebius, a Christian historian, also recounted the horrors of Rome's siege on Jerusalem. He recounts the hunger and the famine that the people of Jerusalem endured during the siege due to the lack of food. Eusebius even recounted the story of a mother eating her child during the siege. It was an incredibly horrific event. But it was one that was predicted not only by Jesus, but all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. That's why I think we've got that brief phrase there at the end of verse 22. You see that phrase? To fulfill all that is written. Jesus is saying that this judgment on Jerusalem will fulfill what God promised in Deuteronomy 28. There God promised his people that if they were not careful to do all that he had commanded, they would be visited with curses, devastating curses. They would be overrun by enemies and do unspeakable things, such as what Eusebius mentioned about that mother and her child. That's predicted in Deuteronomy 28. Jesus answers, his answer and his admonition are are rooted in the prediction of the Pentateuch. There was one surprising outcome in the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. We shouldn't be surprised by it, but it is striking. Did you know that very few Christians were killed during that siege? A million Jews, but very few Christians lost their lives. Very few Christians were killed because they believed Jesus and fled when they saw the armies surrounding Jerusalem. It is a plain fact of history. Along with Eusebius, a man by the name of Piphianus, recorded Christians' flight from Jerusalem to a town called Pella, a city in the Decapolis. Christians were certain that Jesus was telling the truth. And so when they saw the army surround Jerusalem, they fled to safety. The words of Deuteronomy and of Jesus have been fulfilled. And with the conclusion of verse 24, there's something of, of a lengthening of the, the scope of Jesus' teaching. Remember when I said earlier that this discourse kind of expands from God's judgment on Jerusalem and the temple only to expand to consider God's judgment of the world. That's what I think, uh, that's, this is what I was talking about when I said the discourse expands. With Jesus' words there in verse 28, um, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentile, and then notice this time expansion, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We seem to be looking at a period of time that expen- extends beyond the prediction of the destruction of the temple. Jesus is extending his teaching beyond what he was asked in verse 7 it's quite easy to view Jesus words as communicating that Jerusalem will be constantly under Gentile oppression in one sense this began in AD 70 uh, and continues to this day Jerusalem is overrun by the Romans throughout the time since Christ spoke these words the Franks the Persians the Turks and even the British trampled Jerusalem underfoot today The place where the temple once sat is occupied by a Muslim mosque. The fulfillment of the time of the Gentiles may include something else, too. It may include the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles and the ingathering of them into the church of the Lord Jesus. That's what Luke's focus is in the book of Acts, the expansion of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now in verses 25 to 28, we have the end and encouragement. And please notice this. Please notice this. Jesus puts nothing, Jesus puts nothing in between the destruction of the temple and his return in glory. He puts nothing in between the destruction of the temple and his return in glory. The next great event in redemptive history is not the rebuilding of the temple. It is the return of Christ. Jesus is the temple of the living God, as He made plain in John chapter 2, verse 19, when He said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus, John tells us that Jesus was referring to the temple of His body. Jesus is now the center of worship for God's people. What was it that He told the woman at the well? There is coming a time when we will neither worship on this mountain or on that mountain. Why is that? Because Jesus is the temple of the living God. Through our faith union, through us as believers, through our faith union with Jesus, we too become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. We don't need another temple. Why go back to the old covenant, a lesser and glorious relationship with the Lord? We are new covenant believers in Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't put anything in between the destruction of the temple and his return here, so we shouldn't either. The next great redemptive event in redemptive history is the return of Jesus Christ. If Jesus wished to communicate additional events between the destruction of the temple and his return, this would be the place to insert them and teach them. But friends, he didn't. He simply said, the Son of Man will come with power and great glory. Verse 27. Now maybe you think that the signs that are mentioned there in verses 25 and 26 are are things that need to happen before His return. But they're not. These are things that happen at His return. These are signs that attend His return. They occur concurrently with His return. What else would happen when the Creator of heaven and earth came to judge the world in righteousness but a dramatic response from heaven and earth itself? More to the point, Jesus is alluding to Old Testament references to God's judgment. Go ahead and read Isaiah chapter 13 verses 9 to 11. Chapter 17 verse 12. Chapter 24 verses 18 to 23. Ezekiel chapter 32 verses 7 and 8. Amos 8 and 9. Habakkuk 3 and 11. Joel two ten, And I could keep going. Basically, go read the Psalms. Go read the minor prophets. And you'll see that these signs from heaven and earth are mentioned as accompanying the judgment of God. But the judgment of God means something else in those passages. It means the redemption of God's people. That's why we have that encouragement from Jesus in verse 28. When you see Him return, lift up your head, for your final redemption is drawing near. The redemption of God's people has always come in the context of judgment. We need only think of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, where He was judged, and what do we receive in return? Redemption. In verses 29 to 33, we're given a parable and a promise. In verses 29 to 33, Jesus tells us a parable and He gives us a promise. Just as the the leaves of the fig tree come out, so you know summer is near. How will we know that the Son of Man is coming near? When we see the cataclysmic signs of heaven and earth and see the Son of Man descending with great power and glory that's similar to the sign that Jesus gave his disciples concerning the destruction of the temple, wasn't it? It was similar in the sense that it was the kind of sign that you know it when you see it. And since Jesus extended the timeline and scope of his discourse from the end of verse 24 onward, and since, insofar as I can tell, he has not contracted it back down to discuss Jerusalem, I think that it's best to understand Jesus' reference to this generation there in verse 32 as the last generation that sees these signs in the Son of Man. I could be wrong about that, but I'm comforted by the fact that other uh, scholars and, and theologians agree. Whatever the case may be, Jesus promises us in verse 33 that His words will not pass away. What does that mean, His words will not pass away? Well, first, let's observe that Jesus is declaring that His words are on par with Yahweh. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, we read, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. When Jesus says, My words will not pass away, just like Yahweh's words, when my words will not pass away, what Jesus is saying is, I am God. I will make sure that my words stand firm forever. He is God. And this also means that we can be certain that Jesus will return. Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem and the temple. His words came true. His words concerning the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem came true. And these words concerning His return will come true. We can be certain that He will come again. The question is, are we ready for His coming? Friend, if you're here this morning, and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, And I want to encourage you to come to Jesus Christ in faith today. He is coming back. Is He coming back for you? Will you raise your head in joy at His return? Or will you hang your head in shame because you continued in your sin and rebellion? The the truth is, is that all have sinned and rebelled against God. There's not a single person here this morning who is innocent. We are all sinners. We've all violated God's holy law and His commands. We've all decided to live our own way rather than His way. Because of our sin, we deserve to face God's just and eternal punishment when Jesus returns. But friend, what you need to know is that Jesus came the first time to die for sinners like you and me. Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience that we have not lived. And he died on the cross. Bearing the sins and the punishment due for all of them. Who would have returned from their sins and placed their faith in him. And three days after his death God raised Jesus from the dead. He vindicated him and in so doing he proved to us all. That his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. Friend, Jesus was and is the Redeemer. He came to redeem and rescue sinners from punishment. So turn from your sins and put your faith in Him today. So that when He returns, He will return for you. To gather you to His side with joy and delight. And if you want to know more about what it means to be redeemed redeemed by Jesus, please do find me at the door after the service. There's nothing more important you can think about than what it means to be redeemed by Jesus Christ and and anxiously awaiting, longing for His return. We should turn and consider our final, our third and final point, living with care. Here in Luke chapter 21 verses 34 to 38, Jesus gives the practical application of His teaching. Read Luke chapter 21 verses 34 to 38. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. These words were applicable to Jesus' disciples, and they are applicable to us. We must live with care. Jesus calls for self-reflection, self-examination, and really to be on guard against three things. Did you notice them? Dissipation, drunkenness, and the cares of his life. See, Jesus didn't always alliterate. Notice the role in the heart of all of these things. Do you see the role of the heart? The role the heart plays in dissipation, drunkenness, and the cares of this life? The world is a dangerous place. And if our hearts love it too much, it can be deadly. It can swallow us up. The end can swallow us up. Closing suddenly on us like a trap. Hearts that are weighed down by the pleasures of this world are hearts that have little room for heaven and will find little room in heaven. All three of these warnings, dissipation, drunkenness, and the cares of this life are related really to overindulgence in the things of this world. This comes from making this world our home. Jesus' teaching was meant to prepare us For the world to come. Dissipation is not a common word we use in our vocabulary. But it refers to the kind of overindulgence that results really in a hangover. And so you can see how it goes hand in hand. with The the second thing that the disciples of Jesus are to be on guard against. Drunkenness. See, these cautions, they actually assume that Jesus' disciples drank. And while Jesus does not forbid the consumption of alcohol... After all, he turned water into wine on one occasion. Jesus does warn against overindulgence. The people of God should never be drunk. It is a sin to be drunk. You cannot exercise self control when you are drunk. It is hard to set your hope on heaven when you are drunk. You are a danger to yourself, to others. And to your witness to Christ, your great-great-grandmother's Baptist church used to discipline members of their congregations. They used to excommunicate them for public drunkenness. And they were probably right to do so. If I may, I'd like to offer a few remarks on the responsible consumption of alcohol. If you're going to partake, be mindful of two things. If you're going to partake, be mindful of the amount and the audience first with respect to the amount don't go anywhere near drunkenness second be mindful of your audience if you desire to responsibly consume alcohol around others ask them ask them whether or not you may place your freedom into the hands of another and be willing to forego partaking on that occasion. Be careful not to abuse the consciences of others around you. You may not struggle with alcohol, but your brother or sister may. Your friend, your family members, your neighbor may. What does love look like then? I think it looks like letting go. One other thing concerning your audience. If you drink in the presence of those under age, teach and educate. It's actually important not to hide things from our children, but to teach them how to live carefully in this world. That is what Jesus wants from his disciples, which is why he mentions the cares of this world. Children, youth, uh, young adults... Listen to your parents when they teach you about things like alcohol and drugs and the indulgences of this world. Remember that they are teaching you. They're not teaching you just about these things, but about how to recognize your heart in the midst of them and interacting with them. They're trying to teach you about what your heart loves. Do you love the Lord above all else? Your parents want to help you think about who and what you love most. Jesus and His glorious worlds to come, or yourself and this world. And parents, let's be sure to be talking about our hearts and our loves, and not just behavior. It is far more important that we get to our hearts and our hearts' loves. So let's talk about our hearts in these conversations. You know, you've probably heard the phrase, you can be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Well, the reverse is actually true. You can be so earthly minded that you're of no heavenly good. I think that's part of what Jesus is getting at here. Is your heart weighed down with the things of this world? Are you consumed with pleasure and comfort and career or family? Or are you watching and waiting and working for the kingdom of God? Ask yourself, how does my schedule this this next week, Monday, tomorrow, how does my schedule this next week display that I am prioritizing the Lord Jesus and his kingdom, his coming kingdom? Are you, are you meeting with other believers for spiritual good, for your own, or to, to help them follow Jesus with care until he returns? Are you carving out time to meet with somebody who doesn't know the Lord in the hopes that they will come to the Lord so that they're ready at the coming of the Son of Man, so that it doesn't close on them like a trap? Do you meet with the Lord in his word and in prayer? Have you, have you thought about how you might serve another brother or sister in Christ this Week. Have they mentioned a need? Will you meet it? Does the pattern of your life reveal that you are making yourself at home here or that you have a home in heaven? We do not know when Jesus will return. It will happen suddenly, as he says there in verse 34. When he returns, the whole earth will be called to give an account. So we must live with care, with a, a mindfulness that most of your years Brothers and sisters, get this. Most of your years will not be spent here. They will be spent in glory with the Lord Jesus. Prepare for life there, here. We prepare and live with care by being sober-minded, staying awake, and always praying. Does that mark you? We need to be always praying. Could you be considered sober-minded? Do you think theologically about life? Do Do you live with a sense of the Lord's return? Are you daily mindful that He can come back at any moment? Do you pray the very last prayer that we're given in the Scriptures? Do you pray, come, Lord Jesus? If you struggle at being at home in this world, start praying that prayer, come, Lord Jesus. While we wait for His return, Are you living in dependence upon him each day like that widow did? That's why we pray. That's why we express our dependence upon him and ask him to provide. I don't know about you, but I think even the last verse of Luke 21 has something to say to us about living with care. Do you see verse 38, what verse 38 says? It says, early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. I think we should be like those people who are, who were so eager to hear Jesus teaching that they rose early in the morning to meet the bright and morning star. Brothers and sisters, as we conclude this study of God's word, that's really the question I want to leave you with. Do you want to go and meet the bright and morning star? That's what Jesus calls himself in Revelation 22:16. And this chapter is all about him. Don't leave this chapter with your eyes fixed on the events leading up to the end or the events associated with the end. Leave with the eyes of your heart longing for Jesus. He gave us this word because he wants us to be ready for his return. He doesn't want us to be ready for events. He doesn't want us to be ready for signs. He wants us to be ready for him. One day he will return and he will say, to his people, it's time to come home. Until then, live with confidence that he has provided the perfect sacrifice for your sin. Live with certainty, knowing that he keeps his promises. Your redemption is drawing near, it is nearer now than when we began. Live with care the desire to please Him in all that you think, say, and do. Every anxiety, every worry, and every sorrow we face will soon give way to the face of Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray together.